Uh, welcome to the Like a Bigfoot Studio. It's it's official. There is no walls. <laughs> it's, it's outside. Your back, it's your back porch. <laughs> There's a hose laying on the ground. How else can we describe this thing? This is a slack line. There's a, there is a slack over line. jagged rock. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you gotta have consequences for falling <laughs> yeah, off the slack line. Apparently. There's some aspen trees, right? It's pretty. Battle ropes, a grill. We got kettlebells. Some, some play-doh. Some settlers of Catan from a windy night yesterday. <laughs> Which all the cards blew everywhere. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man. So welcome. Yeah. Welcome to the very last episode of 2018. Uh... I put together this week, I put together a clip show for you guys. Um, our last clip show was from episodes one through 40. So I thought I'd just continue that. So it's 40 through 80. Uh, man, I, I got to tell you, every time I do the podcast, and you can ask my wife to verify this, every time I do a recording interview for the podcast, I leave, I come upstairs, and I see my wife and kids sitting there and I turn to my wife and I'm like, that was the best one yet every week <laughs> without fail. I It's been such a really like it feeds my soul, I guess, is that if that's not over exaggerating, it really does. Like I come upstairs and I'm like exhilarated because of the stories that people have shared on the show. Uh, it's been so awesome. And I I had a really rough time even picking out clips from from these episodes, number 40 through 80, because the Midwesterner in me wanted to make sure I got clips from everybody because everyone I talked to was absolutely incredible. Um, and I just couldn't because if I did that, it'd be like a four-hour podcast. Uh, so for the people who I wasn't able to get on this one, I... You guys are amazing. I don't know how else to say it. You're amazing. I just didn't have the time to go through literally every single episode uh, between 40 and 80 looking for clips. Um, but, I mean, I got to say, like, there's some people, like, go. you could go back and listen to it. I mean, a lot of them are people who are repeat guests on the podcast. And I was like, well, I'll talk to them or I'll get clips from them for a future clip show. But, like, my cousin Susan Noel... Uh, Adam Casey, who's just unbelievable, Scott Stark, Sean Furlong, uh, I mean, so many, Adam Jones, Ryan Chukuski, just which, by the way, check out his Bigfoot 200 book if you've been listening to the show, uh, Thad, who's been on a couple times, Thad Burkhamber, Jason Suddeth, I mean, you guys are just, Casey Johnson, like, you guys are just incredible people, and I wish, I wish, I wish, Hayden Hawks. Uh, the incredible runner. I wish I had time to get everyone on the show. Um, so this is me encouraging you to go back and listen to those. Uh, maybe I'll do a clip show in the future where I get some of the stories from the people who I have yet to, to pull from on this. So uh, look forward to that at some point. But we need to get right into this because we got a lot of clips from these episodes. So um, I hope you guys enjoy. And honestly, I hope I hope the stories inspire you, entertain you, um, but ultimately, I hope they just bring joy to you and and help you go towards you, your own goals, whatever they may be. Like, 
I think the coolest thing about podcasts are you get to hear these people. Like if I just heard, um, for example, if I heard uh, someone, I, I talked to Scott Sears on here and he made it to the South Pole. If I hear that in one sentence, I am like, whoa, that's awesome. But if I listen to the whole entire a whole entire interview with that guy, not only do I see his process, but I, I see the peaks and valleys. I see the hardships that they must go through, and it helps me appreciate their accomplishments that much more. So let's get into it. I'm going to start with one that I think is probably the most important message. Um, one of the most important messages that have been shared on the show uh, It's Josh Lajani. If you don't know who Josh is... He's been on Rituals podcast a whole bunch of times. He's just so awesome. He's this guy from Louisiana who's lost so much weight uh, by changing his diet, changing his lifestyle, going to a vegan diet, and and becoming a runner. And most importantly, though, and this is why I'm putting this clip first, he has a message of self-love. And until you start having self-love and talking nicely to yourself in your mind it's going to be really really hard to get anything done so i love his message here we should all uh strive to find more self-love in 2019 so for me as a cajun person it, like right now football season's just kicking off we're going to open up the season our home opener is next weekend so there's tons of tailgating tons of all of that the beer and the sausage and all of the stuff that I used to do that meant football, that meant saints, that meant Sunday to me, um, are still going to be there. Right. Yeah. And, and those neurological dog paths are beaten down. They're not going anywhere. Sausage still smells good. You know, all of that stuff still is, is, is a positive things in my brain. However, I enjoy if you want to put it this way, the challenge of being in those environments and not giving in and being able to abstain, not only for myself, not only because I think it'll, it, it will make my dietary protocol, my lifestyle more anti-fragile, right? Yeah. But also because I get to serve as an example to my brethren who are still chomping on the boudin and the sausage and, and the hamburgers who are still a couple of hundred pounds overweight and knocking on the door of potential uh, heart attack, if not just full-blown heart disease, even though we can maintain that with pharmaceuticals. It's not so, – so that double – that dual purpose drives me to not seek uh, refuge from temptation, but to actually go out into it and, and sort of try out my armor. Um, yeah, man. And, and, right. And, and so that 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 gets you around a lot of a lot of the stuff. So it's just a mindset switch. Instead of feeling defensive all the time, I'm going to go on the offense. I'm going to look for difficult situations so I can be an example to the people I love and care about and have known for all of my life. Wow. And I know what track they're on. We've seen cardiovascular disease t take people's lives at a rate that that leads the country here in Louisiana. So going forward. I would like to be part of the solution, not part of that old way of being, but part of a new way of being that says, hey, Louisianans lives are important. They're so important that maybe it might be time to move away from the gratons, which is just fried pig fat and skin um, 
and let's maybe move away from the gratons and maybe let's have like some uh, portobello mushroom wraps as a tailgate instead of gratons and sausage and 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 um, boudin stuff like hog head cheese, all of that other stuff, right? Yeah. So so it's fun. It's fun. I look yeah. at it as a challenge, just like my running or anything else. I look at it as as a uh, as sort of you know exploration or being of service or some, some being of service to my fellow man. So yeah, that taking, taking it and couching it that way in my brain, um, kind of takes all of the steam out of the temptation part and, and the peer pressure part and all of that stuff. Yeah, man. And, uh, I love that. The I, building yeah. discipline is so, it, it's so important. And you know, once you build it in one area, like your diet, it's going to bleed over into the other areas like you're working out or even your work or your family life. Just, just because you understand how discipline works, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and even more so than discipline, because if you really dig down into what discipline is and people who are actually able to um, implement that idea in their lives, it's really about self-respect and self-love. And making the difficult decisions unemotionally, objectively, pragmatically, because I dig myself enough to make sure that I'm doing the right things, right? And and that's where discipline's doable. When it's just discipline without the self-love, where I'm disciplining myself because I'm an idiot and I deserve nothing more than discipline and punishment for not doing the thing, that's an untenable relationship with the self, yeah. Right. I'm getting up every day with my hair on fire to get after that ass, whether it's running at the track or swimming at the pool um, because I love myself. That's a whole different ball game than if I'm getting up and taking my punishment because I was an asshole and I ate too many cookies yesterday. Right. And so we can get up and do things and kind of fake the funk and 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 physically force ourselves uh into into um, not getting fat or something to that effect, but to just make it be able to through through you know through sheer calorie burn and getting up and making it do what it do when it when you're talking about getting exercise done. Um, but if you can melt the two together and you know in like in my life to where I I really dig myself. I'm not waking up in the morning to punish myself for what I did yesterday. I'm waking up in the morning because I can't add, I cannot wait to add to what I've done yesterday. And that's a big that's a huge difference in orientation to what most people think about when they think about movement and exercise and health and nutrition and mindset and all of that. I just got to the point to where I was identifying with this new thing being a runner and I wanted that um I wanted that. And so instead of running from something, which I had done all of my life, I was trying to not be fat. And when I reoriented myself to, I want to be a runner, I want to be an athlete. And then I was chasing something rather than running from something. That was a huge step for me in the mindset department to really sort of, it it really stopped being a chore and a drag so much. Right. And, yeah. and, um, and so that, that was a big part of it is, is 
is really falling into the running community, the idea of running improvement, understanding splits and wanting to be faster in a 5K, 10K, half marathon, like all of that stuff. You get wrapped up in it and you forget about not being fat. Yeah. You just, it just happens. There you have it for Josh. Uh, Josh Lajani is one of the most inspiring people uh, that you can follow online. So really check him out. I love that message of self-love. Um, the next clip we're going to go into here is with Miguel Medina. Uh, I met Miguel on a, this 50K run we did. Um, and it turns out he's been a world's toughest mutter champion. He's just an incredible ultra obstacle course racer. And he talks about why he embraces pain and what it taught him uh, as he kind of went through his journey to become an athlete. My, my team and I won this event called World's Toughest Mudder in 2014. It was a four-man team, um, not like a relay, but everyone's together. And you run this five-mile loop with like 20-something obstacles for 24 hours. That's and crazy, the year that we man. ran it, it was, it was particularly uh, tough because I guess like a freak sandstorm rolled through. <laughs> so the temperatures at night went from like 40 degrees to like 25 degrees because we had 80-mile-per-hour wind storm windstorm or sandstorm like in in the area for like 10 hours or something like that and after that i mean we you know we battled it out on that course for 24 hours with a bunch of really burly teams and we ended up coming out on top with i think 76 miles with our official winning mileage or whatever but we were just destroyed, man. I mean, nothing I had done to that day had prepared me for fighting through a sandstorm, you know, um, much less running, running in a sandstorm, you know, and, and, and it was the thing about this event is that it's a four man team going out there together, at least at this point in time, it was a four man team. And so everyone during this race has their like highs and lows in terms of their, their state of mind and their physical state. And just everyone uh, on our team, you know, got hit by hypothermia at one point. Everyone just kind of got like, you know, super down in the dumps. I mean, there was a point where I was like, I had sprained my ankle like 35 miles in and just kept, didn't say anything. Cause we, we were, I think in first place or second place and just kind of battling it out. But I mean, as the night wore on, you know, things just got tougher and tougher. And eventually, um, you know, we, we just, it stops becoming a physical thing and it just starts becoming like a totally like mental and spiritual thing out yeah. there. Um, and it's, and it's a really special place to go to when you're, when you're doing an event like that, you know, well, it's, and, special, and we to be, up- <laughs> it's special to be around a group of guys too, like to have a team during that rather than just, you know, I feel like that would, you guys are probably like bonded for life, right? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, two, you know, those, those three guys are my brothers like through and through, but, but two out of three of those guys were, were already like really good friends of mine. And after that, man, I mean, the bond that I share with those three is, uh, it's, it's something that'll never, that'll never crack. You know, I got, I got tons of love and tons of respect for those three. Um, I guess I should, I should say their names, Hunter McIntyre, Mark Jones and Dennis Wayne Welch. Um, Dennis would be a cool guy for you to talk to, by the way, too. but any, any of those three would be, would be cool guys to talk to. They're just a ton of fun. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's kind of where it all started. And then since then, I mean, uh, 
I mean, just in general, I guess to give you the, the race CV, I mean, I've raced like probably 60 times, uh, mostly been top 10, top five or on the podium. And I don't come from an athletic background. I, you know, when I was in high school, I played world of Warcraft <laughs> and, <laughs> and played and played football, like secretly played world of Warcraft while playing like JV and some varsity football. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't let that get out there. And then yeah. in, 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 when I finished high school, you know, I went on to JC and then eventually to UCLA and in the process of doing that, it's kind of when I really started to realize that I had like some severe health issues. Um, turns out I had this, this congenital disc disease, uh, I guess it's severe spinal stenosis. And like, I had symptomatic pain when I was a kid and just had no idea what it was related to. You know, I thought it was like growing pains essentially, but it got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't walk. You know, I, I, uh, we did acupressure and acupuncture and physical therapy and a chiropractor. I mean, I did physical therapy for almost three years and it just did not get any better. Um, and then after getting an epidural in my spine, it only lasted like about three months. And I ended up, you know, when, when the epidural wore off prematurely, I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't put pressure on my left leg. Like if I walked, it was, it was debilitating and, ex and just the most excruciating pain ever. So finally I had back surgery. Um, but then after back surgery, <laughs> I ended up getting a, a pretty bad stab infection in my spine. So oh, geez, man. it just, it snowballed. No, but it's, but it was good. You know, yeah. um, I'm a true believer that, that pain is, is a good thing. Pain is a, is a really good teacher. It teaches you to appreciate things and it teaches you to really be introspective, uh, in terms of, of where you are in life and what, and, and just who you are and what you want to be, you know, and, and that experience, those like 11 months of recovery, um, really opened my eyes to, to just having a very serious conversation, conversation with myself of who do I want to be? You know, what do I want to do? And, and everything just kind of changed. And suddenly along the way I discovered racing, you know, like my, my doc said I had to stay active to avoid, uh, you know, or I guess to minimize symptomatic pain. Cause unfortunately I still have, I still deal with, with pain from, from my spinal condition. Oh, wow. As, as crazy as it sounds, you know, I, it's still, it's still something that I like have to try and mitigate. And so he said, just staying active really helps. And, uh, I mean, I think I kind of took it to sure. another level. That's what I was going to say, man, that like, have you contacted him since and be like, Hey, remember when you told me to stay active? Here's what I do now. Yeah. <laughs> if there's one thing I love featuring on the show, it's these incredible adventures. Um, and there's no bigger adventure wilder adventure in my mind than the people who travel to the south pole even to imagine pulling a sled across a desolate wilderness as as completely isolated as you possibly can be on earth is just incredibly fascinating to me um and so when i got the chance to talk to the antarctic gurkha scott sears I was geeking out like big time and it's still to this day was one of my absolute favorite interviews for the show. And we talked before Scott did his unsupported or yeah, unsupported journey to the South pole where he hauled a 350 pound sled, um, completely by himself. And he was the youngest person to ever do it. 
and he made it to the South Pole on Christmas Day, which is just absolutely incredible. And I was really, really proud of this episode and just really, I left that conversation so excited about taking on the world. <laughs> so here you go. The So the, the whole thing behind it was, I was basically... Um, I, I was sent out to Asia where we were posting. We were specialising in jungle warfare out there. But because I, I joined right at the end of the Afghanistan era and uh, in the army, and I wanted that, that was like, like I joined the infantry and I wanted to go out to Afghanistan and I missed it. And I was I was the last ones, uh, we were the last intake that didn't get sent out there. And so I joined like trying to do this, you know, I wanted to do, you know, some epic adventures and like really sit and we basically just got stuck training. And yeah. I was like, this yeah. is bollocks like i'm just training like every day and we trained for two years and it was cool like you know we were doing some really fun stuff in the jungle and, and you know it was tough but it was it wasn't like really edge of you know like edge of your endurance it was all very much you know this is an exercise this isn't properly like life and death actually relying on yourself and your decisions which is what i wanted i wanted to see when it the shit really hit the fan like yeah. did i did i have the sort of resilience that i hoped i did and i'll probably find out that i don't and i'm a bit of a softy and but actually getting in that opportunity that that situation where where it is like your decision is is the one that that, that make or breaks it so i basically looked at it and i'd always wanted to do a polar expedition and i'd always wanted to do a solo expedition because especially in the army when you're when you get leaders legs around you and you've got 30 guys who are turning to you and saying like all right what are we doing now boss and you're like okay we'll do this because you you get this energy from nowhere but when you're by yourself and like no one's looking you actually really see the dark sides of your character and yeah. that's what i wanted to do is i wanted to actually come out the other side and be like yeah like i did this in that scenario i wasn't that great there um so that's how i settled on like solo to the south pole it wasn't um necessarily you know, uh, when I was younger, I was always interested in it, but it hasn't been burning like right South Pole by myself from the yeah. age of 10. Um, it's just the most miserable journey you can do, I think. <laughs> what uh, um, what made you obsessed with the South Pole when you were younger or like interested in it, maybe not obsessed? Because, yeah, because I'd, basically I read uh, quite a lot and I like, I really, all the polar from the like golden age of polar exploration, you know, in the early 1900s, like the, those are the savage years of guys you know yeah. like having to eat their shoelaces and real men like oh, real dude. real gnarly dudes <laughs> yeah. like they would have been some chaos things and i was like oh, that's that's and even in the last 30 years like ran off finds he's like our best explorer like you read the stuff he was doing he sawed off his own fingers after he got frostbite and things like that and you're like these guys are nails like they are nails yeah. and in mountaineering and stuff like that, you get these epic stories, but it's always in teams and it's not as mentally destroying as the polar regions are because the polar regions just break you down physically, mentally, emotionally to just a complete mess. And so for me, that's the toughest, I think it's the toughest sort of thing you can do. Um, and I think this is a once in a lifetime sort of thing, um, especially after seeing how, how much it takes to raise the sponsorship that I wanted to do like one huge like if i never managed to organize something else again i managed to at least sort of hit for me i think the mother load in terms of solo solo journeys i just i'm trying to wrap my head around one just being by yourself but also being yeah. by yourself so ri ridiculously far away from civilization yeah um the the thing that when i'm in the tent for example at night because you're doing jobs the whole time you're like 
you know, you've got to melt the ice doing that. It was fine. When you the skiing, when no visual stimulation, like when it's just white, because I had quite a lot of whiteouts when I'm there. It's like you're in the inside of a ping pong ball. Yeah. And it's actually, I can't really explain how disorientating it is, where you don't really know where's up, where's down, and you get really dizzy. And there, when I was remember skiing, I was like, okay. And when I didn't, I did a bit without music or anything or podcasts or anything like that. And I, you know, I'd ski and I'd genuinely be like, okay, that's got to be like an hour, you know, hour and fifteen minutes. And you'd look down and be like, that was seven minutes. And you're like, that can't, yeah, you're like, that can't be right. Like that cannot be right. And genuinely thought like I've just banged out an hour. That that's easily an hour, and it's not even ten minutes. Um, and that sort of stuff is, I think, the skiing is the toughest bit by yourself. In the tent, you're busy and you've got stuff to do. Like, and I've got jobs and tasks I need to do, but it is literally just one foot in front of the other for 12 to 14 hours a day looking at white snow in front of you, which I think takes the most toll. And people get completely so. Felicity Ashton, who is a British um, uh, female explorer who skied across Antarctica, and it took her, I think it was 70 days by herself. Wow. She got to the point where, A, she was so nervous about whiteouts and so like just didn't want to be in that she started talking to the sun and completely was having full-blown conversations with the sun like the sun was answering back and like she felt she had this really fickle relationship with the sun where if she didn't say thank you every time she saw the sun like she'd get a white out the next day and she was convinced that the sun would take it out on her and even when she got back she'd like come out of her house in london and if it was a nice day she felt like she had to like say thank you yeah. to the sun like people completely you know losing the plot like it's mental it is mental <laughs> the other big adventure that fascinates me and i'll read up on and just it'll capture my imagination um but my wife is probably glad that i placed it in my i never want to do that category <laughs> uh would be mount everest um so i have a few interviews i was lucky enough to do with a couple people who who climbed mount everest about their trip uh the first one you're going to hear is andy anderson and his cousin john anderson uh they climbed everest they're from iowa uh they climbed it under the moniker of iowans for everest um so you hear about a horrifying moment uh that andy had that he had to get over in order to be successful. The way that it works is you move from camp two to camp three, and then you rest at camp three for several hours. So you leave at camp two in the morning, go to camp three, rest for several hours, and then leave that night for the summit. And uh, just below camp three, um, we came across our first dead body. Um, and. I thought it was one of the famous ones. I didn't know where all the bodies were. There are hundreds of bodies on Everest, right? Um, the, the government a couple of years ago made a pretty big push to move most of the bodies out of sight, um, but they left a few in sight. And uh, so I thought this was one of the famous ones. So I was taking a couple of pictures um, of the body. And as I got closer, I noticed that, and this is about uh, a few hundred feet below Camp 3. Uh, so we weren't even to Camp 3 yet. And uh, I noticed that his boots... Uh, were this year's model of the La Sportiva 8,000-meter peak boots. And I thought, oh, this is a, this is a fresh body. <laughs> wow. And so I unclipped from – it, it was still clipped to the, the fixed line. <sighs> um, so you had to either – if you're on one side, you had to just sort of step over, or if you're on the other side of the fixed line, you had to unclip and, and go around. Um, so I unclipped. 
I ran past him. It really, it really shook me um, to see this dead body. And we later found out that uh, it was an Australian gentleman um, who went up, um, went to Mushroom Rock, wasn't feeling well. He was using oxygen, had a Sherpa, um, doing everything the safe way, got to Mushroom Rock, wasn't feeling it, was going down. And initially they said that his brain swelled up and he just died. But later reports said that he, uh, his heart failed and he just, just, you know, just fell That's over. so crazy. Just a few hours before we passed them. Wow. So this is a fresh body, and uh, and it it, uh, it shook me. It shook me a little bit. Um, I thought, how is my body going to react when I go even higher? I mean, and the the answer to that isn't clear until it happens. So either it's it's a, it's a dichotomy, right? So either one thing happens or another. You either like have a problem and die, or you don't have a problem and live. And you don't know the answer to that question until it comes to that impact. Like you either die or you don't, um, and you have no warning beforehand. Um, so that that kind of shook me, and it, it thought, is this really worth the risk? And all these other things. Um, and finally, I, I I got it in my mind that I needed to be positive and, and think about uh, the other people that it's already summited in our group, the rushing uh, cohort, and um, finally got back on positive. And, and, and pushed hard on summit day. And then the next clip I'm going to play is the episode I've heard the most about from uh, people who have contacted me and reached out. And people have been like, that episode was amazing. Um, it was the conversation with Kuntal uh, Joysher, who was the first vegan athlete to get to the top of Mount Everest. Uh, everything about a story i it was really hard for me to pull a, a clip and it's funny because the clip i pulled really wasn't even from everest necessarily but kuntel's story is one of perseverance um he went to everest twice it was canceled twice uh if you know the stories you know why um there was the sherpa accident and then the year after the uh avalanche slash earthquake that hit base camp and he tells stories from those moments and it's it's horrifying uh edge of your seat kind of stuff um but he didn't give up he really he pushed through to accomplish his goal and i think that's what's most inspiring about him uh kuntel also you know for me doing the interview uh i was talking to this guy who lives in india and it was fascinating to me i was like wow like i'm talking to a person who lives on the whole other, the exact opposite side of the world of me. And how cool is this uh, that I'm, I'm able to do this? So um, this is from his training climb on uh, Manaslu, which is one of the gigantic mountains in the Himalayas. So check it out. It's kind of a, a what not to do tale. <laughs> the expedition was canceled after a week. Uh, all the expeditions on the south side of the mountain were cancelled that year and um, I I was really I was like sure you know I'm going to go back home uh, and I'm going to train harder and I'm going to come back you know more prepared next year so that's the mentality I went with I you know thought okay it's just one attempt Yeah. so many people have to make so many attempts to climb this mountain so you know let's not be you know dejected or anything uh and that's how I came back. And frankly speaking, again, the the calling 
or you know that intense burning desire to climb Everest had not gone away. It it's not as if you know I came back from attempt one and said you know I don't want to climb Everest. That didn't happen. I wanted to climb Everest more than ever. So that fueled my training and that fueled you know a lot of changes were happening in me even from a you know from a from a spiritual or from a character development perspective because I had seen so many things on the mountain. Uh, anyways, I trained for another year and I, you know, uh, went back to climb Everest. Uh, in the meanwhile, I also ended up climbing Mount Manaslu. Mount Manaslu is the eighth highest mountain in the world. And at 27,000 feet, it is also one of the big mountains of the world. So I ended up climbing and reaching the top of Mount Manaslu, which is... Uh, which was my first 8,000 meter mountain, which is also something that put my confidence on a different level. Now, suddenly I knew what was going to happen inside the death zone. Yeah. Suddenly I knew, you know, how to, what my body is going to do, what my mind is going to do. I knew, I knew in my mind that I'm going to climb Everest. I just don't, didn't knew when, but I knew that if the terrain stayed okay and if the weather stayed okay, and if my body, you know, held up, I would reach the top of Mount Everest. I knew. I knew what it takes to climb that mountain. So I was fairly confident. Not overconfident in any which way, but confident. So how how did I, your body react? Like when you're above the death zone, like are you conscious of that? Like, you know, when you cross into the death zone, does that does any thoughts go through your head or do you even know? Um uh, you don't consciously know that you are in dead zone like suddenly it's not like a a single point that you cross and suddenly you know hey this is the dead zone not that way but once you are high up on the mountain once you are about 77 or 7800 meters and nearing the dead zone you know that your body is just becoming slower and you know you are just you know you you get tired out quickly you have to take breaks more often um all these but let me tell you what happened to me on manaslu uh we were at 7,500 meters, which is camp four on Manaslu. And we started out at two o'clock in the morning. Manaslu is a short climb to the summit from camp four. And uh, my Sherpa put oxygen bottles in my bag. And for the first time, he put oxygen. I was the only team member who elected not to sleep on oxygen that night because I was feeling very strong. The moment my Sherpa put oxygen on me, I literally felt like a superman. <laughs> I... <laughs> But but let me tell you, he, he he actually hadn't really put the oxygen at any tangible level where I would feel like a superman. So somehow I feel it was just a placebo effect. Yeah. That, you know, that, hey, oxygen is on me. I'm like just going to run up this mountain. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I started climbing. Uh, about 15 minutes later, the, the Sherpa that was climbing with me uh, said, hey, can you wait for five minutes? Uh, I would just like to, you know, uh, use the loo. And um, I said, hey, you know, look, our other Sherpas are ahead. Can I just walk behind them? And he said, sure, you know, you can walk behind them. Uh, I will catch up with you. And the moment he said, I'll catch up with you, I just went. I don't know what was going on in my mind. I think I possibly had summit fever. I just wanted to reach the summit. And... You know, this is very much not me, but I also wanted to reach summit first. I don't believe in racing on the mountain, but I don't know what happened in my mind. But this is what happens when you are, you know, in oxygen deprived environment. Things that you think at sea level that you won't do, 
yeah. you actually start doing exactly uh, those things so uh, you know i just start walking and i just start walking really really fast and i like just started overtaking everyone like you know i overtook first climber i overtook second climber i overtook the third climber and their sherpa and then suddenly you know i realized that there's no one in front of me and uh, manaslu does not have a fixed line because the climb to the summit is uh, you know uh, fairly on a gentle 30 degree slope so i find suddenly myself here where there's no one in front of me and i'm all alone and it's pitch dark like if i turned off my headlamp and put my hand in front of me i could not even see my hand it was that dark and 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 i'm like shit what have i done i am this is absolutely crazy and then i suddenly see a small headlamp in front of me and that's like a sense of relief runs through me that no there is one more person in front of me so then i you know just keep following that headlamp and look manaslu is a huge plateau there have been stories where people have actually gotten lost on manaslu for days and days and no one's able to find them so now i'm shit scared as well that you know if i miss this headlamp in any which way i'm you know uh, you know going to be like lost and my sherpa is nowhere to be found so i'm following this headlamp and then at a certain point the headlamp just disappears <laughs> because there are you know small hills up yeah. on manaslu and once you disappear on top of hill i can't see them so now it's 3:30 in the morning about 4 in the morning and uh, there's still dawn has still not come so i can't still see anything and it's you know time to make a decision it's time whether you know i have to go in front whether i should stay and it's also during this time that my fingers were starting to get cold and they were almost starting to get numb um and i was like i i don't want to lose a finger for this mountain and so i actually just decided that i'm going to sit there and like uh, do nothing so for next half an hour i was just sitting there and no one actually came which is when i started panicking that i'm lost yeah. that i'm not on the route because no one's coming in half an hour i couldn't have overtook them so fast that they can't show up for half an hour and then i decided that i have to go down that you know i really cannot take this risk with my life with my fingers or with anything that i'll go down so i started down climbing and after about 10 minutes of down climbing i suddenly see that there's a headlamp that is coming up and and this guy shows up and he's wearing a yellow down jacket and my sherpa was also wearing yellow down jacket but yellow down jacket is a very common thing on the mountains so i go near him and of course this is my sherpa and i am like so so relieved uh, and then i ask him what happened and he's like you know i have a bad 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 bout of diarrhea and i have you know just been stopping and breaking all the time in last you know few hours that i'm trying to catch up with you and uh, you are running so fast that i actually had to take oxygen uh, and pump it up to you know full four pressure so that i could catch up with you and i you know i totally realized my mistake i should never have left my sherpa because uh, you know i didn't know the route on the mountain and uh, i should never have run this you know this much it's just stupid you should never be racing on the mountain look no one at the end of the day asks whether you reached first or whether you reached second or yeah. whether you reached it's just important to reach the top of the mountain yeah. and you know stay safe and you know stay uh, you know alive and all these mistakes i made you know anyways luckily my sherpa met me and uh, he you know helped me bring uh, you know or you know circulation back in my fingers and after that we just gently moved up and 
you know both of us reached the top of mount panaslu and it it was an absolutely spectacular experience because um, and uh, half an hour later you know the first light uh, of the day hit and it was like a crystal clear day no cloud in the sky and you could see all the way to tibet and all nepal and it almost felt as if you know i was on top of the world and it was just an absolutely crazy feeling i yeah. just thoroughly enjoyed the climb after that point you know when i came back in my senses that i don't want to run up this mountain yeah sure you know i'm fit i am strong doesn't mean that you know i take unnecessary risk and then of course I'm an ultra runner. I love ultra running. Um, it's one of the things I'm really passionate about, uh, as a lot of people that I've had on the podcast are. And um, so we got a couple adventure stories from there. But even in within the episodes 40 through 80, I've talked to so many incredible ultra runners that you guys should go back and listen to. Uh, Hayden Hawks. Um, talked to Ryan Chikuski. Uh, all these awesome awesome runners here um uh justin horniker great runner um but i think ultra running is just a breeding ground for adventure stories and so here's a couple uh first one's gonna be from candace burt and it's one of the most unique weird out of a ultra running is a weird sport in general but this has to be in the top weird stories that have come out of an ultra running event. It was from her experience running the Hurt 100 when uh, everybody in Hawaii got a very weird, weird text. There was a moment that might have been like the weird. It, it, no, it was the weirdest obstacle in ultra running history. And that's <laughs> you put a picture up of a <laughs> cell phone emergency alert of the uh missile threat coming to hawaii when when everyone thought a ballistic missile was about to hit hawaii <laughs> yeah what was that yeah, like that fun. that's crazy <laughs> oh it was totally crazy i mean i didn't know that that i'm pretty sure that people who live in the state of hawaii were aware that that you know they might have a drill or something like that but i had no idea um, yeah. about anything like that and so yeah, so I actually was running down toward Nuanu Aid Station and Avery Collins, who ended up winning the race, there's a little out and back on that section. He's coming up the hill, and he he said something, and the guy in front of me, we both were like, what did he say? Because he looked, he had the weirdest look on his face. And the next guy coming up told us, oh, you know, there's a missile coming to hit Hawaii. And I was like, what? <laughs> You're crazy. Like, what? It's just, it seemed like. Yeah, it, you know, so another runner told us, and so I'm running down to the aid station thinking, oh, maybe I won't have to finish this race after all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll die. Wow. It's like, maybe I'll break my leg. No, yeah. I know, yeah, so it was just this weird, I, I guess if I had been in a store, um, because what happened is everybody got like one of those amber alert kind of things to their phone. So literally, Catra was in, she told me she was in Starbucks, and she, everybody looked at their phone and then freaked out, you know, like people are just like going to their cars and, you know, the highways are jammed. And so I think being on the trail, it just didn't feel as real. It yeah. seemed like it could be a weird joke or mistake or yeah. something more than um, when everybody's panicking around you. Oh. Um, and then by the time we got to the aid station, they knew it was um, not 
uh, you know, wasn't a real threat. So, but then you start to really think about it, you know, what, what would you do? And, you know, would you survive? So yeah, yeah, it was, it was definitely a a weird thing to think about. I mean, you've had to hear, like, you've had to have moments in a hundred mile races or moments, you know, doing your 200 mile races where people are saying some like really wacky shit, but that has to be yeah. up there. <laughs> like the someone running by yeah, me like, Hey yeah. man, there's like a ballistic missile coming. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah, that was up there. <laughs> it probably will never, I hope it never happens again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was unique. I mean, usually race directing, um, I mean, you hear something weird, somebody's hallucinating. We have runners come into the, the finish line or I'll see them at an aid station and, and they just, you know, you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, a bear jumped out of the woods and chased you down the trail to hear, I mean, I don't see a bear right now. I think you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> just weird stuff like that. That is insane. <laughs> um, I'm sure you guys have heard at this point, but Candace started her own podcast called Humans of Ultra Running. It's, I'm a huge fan of it. Like I've listened to every episode so far and um, I absolutely love it. So definitely go check that out. Her races are just dominating right now. Um, so Destination Trails, check all of those out. Uh, maybe someday, maybe someday, Candace, the the <laughs> 200 milers. <laughs> um Yeah, the next one is from Natalie Larson. Natalie set the uh, fastest known time for the California California Coastal Trail. And the whole episode is just her recap of that and the adventures she had over the however many days. I think it was like 40-some days. Um, the, The clip I pulled is probably the longest clip that you'll hear on the episode, but... I just couldn't cut any of it. So basically, Natalie explains the hardest day of her FKT and there's everything from like death defying uh, trying to outrun the ocean tide before it traps her Uh, you know she's running on the beach to the right there's just cliffs to the left is the ocean and the tides coming up to uh, just a really scary mountain lion encounter so check it out I know that you had to scare away a mountain lion (laughs) <laughs> how do you scare away a mountain lion and how did that happen and like well, how were you feeling in the moment and all that I fun could stuff? tell you the the story of the whole day starting from because it was a very stressful day before I got to the mountain lion experience um so like I woke up that day the night before well I could go back to the night before. There's so many like cool stories that yeah. happened. But... <laughs> no, go back to the night before. I okay, hear about it. I, I'll go back to the night. Like every day was interesting. But yeah. the night before, I'll go back to the night before. It was stressful because um, like I had made it. I was happy that day. I made it to Shelter Cove, which is like the halfway point of the Lost Coast Trail, which was the thing that I guess – scared me the most because it was the most isolated and um part with no like stores or anything and and a lot more elevation changed like the rest of southern california is so flat but then northern there's more hills and so i was happy to make it to shelter cove stopped at the store and bought some stuff but i still wanted to go farther that night um 
saw like two shooting stars. That was cool. And then um, was trying to find where the trail started. It started on um, the beach, I guess. And I, I thought I was following the signs. There was like a big sign that said trailhead this way, trailhead and bathrooms this way. So I follow it. I find the bathrooms and there's a parking lot and I'm looking and like the only thing that looks like a trail is like this metal gate. Um, and it, it was a trail going down, but it didn't have like a sign or anything. So I thought, okay, so I go down there. The guidebook said I'm supposed to cross a stream. There's a stream. I cross it and then the trail just disappears and there's nothing there. And I was like, this, the Lost Coast Trail is pretty well trod and this doesn't make sense. And so I spent like an hour trying to figure out like, where does it go? Cause there were like animal trails leading off and I was so upset. So I just like went back up to the, went back up to the, um, street and was looking at the map again. And like, uh, I think I was even like, so frustrated. I was crying and like, I was just like, Oh my gosh. So I, it did look on the, like on the map, like there was like a place where, um, another place you could get to the beach. So I was like, well, even though the sign didn't say to go that way, I'll go that way and try it. So I go that way. And then there happened to be these two people, this couple who was just like, um, camping out of their car that night. And they were super nice and like, Hey, how's it going? And I told them about the whole thing. I was like, is there like a trail up here? And they're like, well, there's the beach. And like, it <laughs> like, well, at least that's I a very the California beach. answer. Like, well, no, there's the beach. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, that, that's gotta be it. And they were like, yeah, we think it's, they did say like this. We think it's the Lost Coast Trail or we were talking and, but they were like, before you go, do you want a beer? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, sure. And and then they gave me um, a Nutella and peanut butter um, tortilla wrap thing too, and so their like kindness like cheered me up a lot. And I was like, okay. And then I got to the beach, and then it 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 didn't. I didn't see a, uh, another sign for the Lost Coast Trail, but um, it it did. I followed it along, and um, it it was the right way, and. So that was good that that worked out, but um, it was it was really hard to see at night because it was really misty, and then my headlamp you couldn't see very far, and and uh, so I couldn't. It, it was stressful too because in that section of the Lost Coast, people have died because the water will come in, and then you can't get off the beach, and you get trapped, and then the waves take you out ocean so it was really stressful hiking at night not being able to see knowing that like I knew where it was like up ahead and I hadn't gotten there yet to the problem areas but it was still stressful yeah. um and then my headlamp started to die oh. and I was like this what am I gonna do <laughs> so um so there was like a place where you could camp that was um close by. So I, I just like ducked in there and camped, um, behind these people were, were, were camping there. So I went behind them and slept there. Okay. So now in the morning, in the morning of the mountain lion day, I woke up there and 
I didn't set my alarm, but apparently I was like so exhausted that I slept later than I expected. Or maybe I I had some melatonin with me that I might've taken because I wasn't tired because I thought I'd be going farther. And anyway, so I, I woke up at like 1030 and the, the time window for making it past the next problem section was supposed to end like in half an hour. And if I didn't make it past there, then I, and I wanted to still finish the next segment by the end of the day, I would have had to have gone like a really long way in a short amount of time. Um, and it would have been stressful. So I needed to, is it just like because of the tides? Is that why like the problem section is because of the ocean? Okay. Because the, you have to go when the tide is below, I think it was below three feet was safe. And I had made pictures of the tide tables on my phone and, um, there was like a low tide at 1030 and then the next one was at 9 PM. And so. Yeah, so I really wanted to, like, run the, like, eight miles or however much it was, like, before in in that window. So, but I woke up, and then there was this magical cliff bar that just appeared that was, like, I guess somebody left it for me right there. So that was cool (laughs) in the morning. And then this uncle and his nephew were hiking um, past me, and... I like was asking them if they knew up ahead if it was low tide and they were like, yeah, it's low. And then they like gave me a bunch more protein bars and they said they saw a human skull up ahead, which like kind of freaked me Don't out. Don't tell me that. Don't tell me there's yeah. a human. Is it like, okay, so I'm trying to imagine. So is there like cliffs? Like, are you like stuck? So if you'd make the decision to go and then the tide comes up, are you basically like, I yeah. have nowhere to go? You're stuck there wow. and then there's no to go yeah and that's people really have died because of that or I was reading after the fact that um people like just um the the tide wasn't so far up that it like swept them but it was like they had to climb around slippery rocks and then it just sort of got in their feet and they tripped and then it swept them out and then yeah and so that's intense that's really yeah and this is before the mountain line (laughs) yeah so just setting the stage for crazy i was feeling yeah and it was at the end of the trip so i was already kind of burnt out and everything and really stressed out about the whole tide issue and so um i just like i was like running as fast as i could and i would have i i had like there was uh i knew the places where you could get off and um go back into the woods like where there's like a break in the cliffs you know where there's like a stream or something and um every time I would get there I would like stop and ask um if I saw people like to make sure that I could still keep going and um and I could and I but anyway I was running like as fast as I could and finally I got to like almost the end of the segment and the guy was this guy was like yeah you just gotta make it around this point like it we're not sure if you can make it but if you do then just go to that bluff trail and then you'll be like safe because you'll be on the bluff up uh, on top of you know the beach and I was like okay and um I got to the point and um it it, it 
you know, I can't remember exactly what it looked like. It was a little scary, like climbing over the slippery rocks, but, but I made it around there and then got to the bluff trail and I was like, so relieved to have made it there. And then, um, so then that afternoon I just was like hiking slowly because, um, I had until 9 p.m. to get to the next problem segment. So I get to the next problem segment, and then I was there too early because uh, I tried to go, and then I could just see, like, the ocean was, like, hitting the, the wall. I couldn't go. So I just waited another hour and took a nap, and it was actually, like, that was, like, a really nice time because I was so scared the rest of the day that I could just, like, the relax. The moment of reprieve, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, and then, um, I set my alarm and got up so I could go like as soon as it was, the tide was low enough. And so got past there and then, uh, yeah, it was misty again and I couldn't see again. And so the beach was pretty wide and if I wanted to walk on the packed sand, I couldn't really see the landscape to my right of like the, um, the bluffs or like where there might be a trail leading up like a bluff trail. And so I was just going on the packed sand for a while, but then I came to this place where you had to climb over rocks. I don't know if I missed something or if there's an easier way or a bluff trail that I missed, but it was really scary. And, uh, it was slippery rocks at night climbing and the only other time in Malibu, it was like that too. And that was because um, that was like before I realized, you know, that I should read ahead a few pages in the guidebook. And it was written for somebody that's going north to south instead of south to north. And I missed the part where it said that you're only supposed to go there in a negative tide. So, oh. Yeah. But this, anyway, so this was, it was really scary climbing over these slippery rocks and I get past that and, um, and then I see like this bluff trail and I was like so happy to see a trail because you're moving so slow over the rocks. It's not like running, you can't run it when they're slippery. And so I get to the, the bluff trail and I was so happy to have found that trail that I took a picture of it. And then I look up, and there's the mountain lion. <laughs> oh, was it looking at you? Was it, like, stalking you? Or did you just run into it, basically? I just, it, it was on the trail up ahead of me on um, uh, a little hill off to the side. And it was looking down at me. And uh, my light was, like, reflecting its eyes. And I tried... Like, the couple I had met the night before were, like, they work in, like, the outdoor industry, and they're, like, you got to say, like, hey, bear, like, <laughs> as you're walking. Like, I'm a mountain lion. <laughs> exactly. So, it's like, hey, mountain lion. <laughs> sat there looking at me. No way. And then, and then I tried, like, playing music out of my phone, and I tried, like, uh clapping and then my backpack had a whistle that was really loud and I like blew the whistle really loud it didn't care it just was staring at you this whole time as you're trying and I, was like, I couldn't I didn't I was like 
I, I wanted to go ahead on the trail, but I didn't want to, I was afraid to just yeah. walk on the trail when it was right there. And, and I'm a small person. I'm like five, less than five feet tall. And I know that they like prey on children and yeah. small people. And so anyway, so I was just like, I had read about this technique for dogs in this race I was going to do last year called Vol State. That's 500 K across Tennessee where you just like yell something obscene at them, like in an angry voice. And it's more about your tone. But if you say something obscene, then it helps you get the right tone. Helps you get so, character, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just like, get the fuck away. <laughs> like really loud. Were like, you like, I'm going to let my anger out from the last yeah. day of stress that I've had. Yeah, I think even without thinking about it, I was just so tired and stressed out and like exhausted and frustrated with everything that was just like, just get away. Yeah. Did it run away? And then it just ran away. That was one of my favorite stories told on the show. Uh, Natalie, I just had a blast talking to Natalie and and really just hearing her stories because that's the other thing with this is... I'll follow along on people's stories through social media, you know, on their adventures as they're posting things, but you only get so much from a social media post and to actually sit down and listen to the story is, is something else. And even that, like, I mean, we talked for like an hour and a half and that, that bar- probably barely even scratched the surface of the adventure uh, she was able to have. Uh, another, big adventurer uh scott morris um i've had him and his girlfriend esther on uh they're just incredible travelers bike packers i think they just got into uh like pack rafting which is super cool but uh but scott uh talks here about uh bike bike packing slash (laughs) putting the bike on his back and hiking through the grand canyon and then uh he also has a, a quick mountain lion story, which is kind of a common theme on the show that comes up every so often. There are a few cases where carrying a bike is the only way to get across, and one of those is the Grand Canyon. And so that's how I first got into carrying a bike on my back was that I wanted to through ride the Arizona Trail uh, from Mexico to Utah, and there's this bit of an obstacle in the northern part of the state that's this really deep canyon that's very famous yeah man i might have heard of it maybe yeah a couple couple of people i think know about it and visit it every year but uh riding bikes is a big no-no and they you know they confiscate and are very serious about it and uh but uh a friend of mine named lee blackwell sort of knew one of the superintendents up at the park uh at the time this was in 2005 i think and he was able to get permission for us to, as long as the wheels did not touch the ground, uh, we could disassemble our bikes and put them on our backs and hike from, you know, rim to rim, from south rim to north rim, and then reassemble the bikes and continue riding and nice. go and finish the Arizona Trail. Is it just because it's so such a like gnarly terrain, and it would be, I have to imagine, it would be incredibly dangerous to ride a bike? That's right. And, um, it's just you could, it would be a disaster if it was open to bikes. People would, people would fall off and kill themselves. I mean, people fall off the trail just walking. Wow. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is that other hikers, it, 
there's such popular trails at times that, you know, to be riding down um, while other people are, you know, while you're dodging hikers would be really dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not that it's wilderness. It's just that it's not safe and doesn't make sense. Yeah. How big of a pain in the butt is it to disassemble your bike and then put it back together? Uh, it takes a while for sure. It's not a quick transition. Yeah. Um, and it's a little nerve wracking when you take the first few steps and you're sort of looking down at the abyss and you're wondering whether your, whether your wheels are going to fall off or, you know, or something, something's going to happen. Yeah. So have you had any run-ins with wildlife while you're biking? Uh, nothing, um, nothing. Well, I have felt, I certainly felt frightened at times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the first year that I did the Arizona Trail 300, uh, which was that kind of race was from Mexico, the first 300 miles of the trail, basically. Uh, and the reason it stopped there was because uh, there's a lot of wilderness after that, and you have to do a bunch of road riding. Okay. Um, so that was my first idea for a single track bike packing race was to race that 300 mile uh, on the AZT. So, uh, anyway, the first year, uh, I was finished, I was getting close to the finish and I was going up to kind of up the block Canyon. Um, it's actually open to like ATVs and motos and stuff, but it's called box Canyon, but it's, uh, near the Gila river and pretty narrow, uh, little deal. And I was going up just blitzed out of my mind, uh, you know, hallucinating and really, really tired and. I think I I knew I had a few I definitely had a few more hours and a few more clients to go though so it's yeah. not like I was you know could smell the finish <laughs> but it's probably one a.m. one a.m. or or midnight or, or oh, uh, middle of the night and I I stop at some point in this box canyon and I have shining my headlamp um, all around just sort of taking in the all the colors and the patterns of the of the rock there uh, and as I'm shining around I see a pair of eyes. Uh, up on the top, up on the top of the cliff, and I'm looking at them, and I think, okay, that's that's not, they're not small, pretty big. I can tell the spacing. Uh, I'm not sure what color uh, mountain lion eyes are, but I'm thinking, you know, that could be a lion. Yeah. And and so I kind of look at it for a while, and it's just stone still. And uh, I continue. I decide I should continue and get out of there. You know, obviously I'm still racing too. And but it then it makes you go out of, faster, right? A little bit. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, my heart was definitely going a little bit. <laughs> Just so, the extra boost you so needed. That, yeah, exactly. And so then I'm uh, riding a little bit more and I can't help but keep scanning the cliffs, you know, because I'm just thinking like, what is this cat doing? And two more times, I swear, I saw the exact same oh, color man. and spacing of the eyes. And so whatever this was, which could have been a mountain lion, it was following me. And then, of course, I had the genius thought of, I'm in a slot canyon, and if this cat wants to pounce on me, A, he knows exactly where I'm going, and B, oh, he yeah. knows, probably knows the, the best place to pounce on me. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. <laughs> what do you do? Do you just, I mean, I guess I was talking to Candace about this a couple of weeks ago, too. I mean, do you just... I mean, you have a bike, so do you just lift it over your head and like try to scare? Yeah, it? I mean, you could use it. I guess you could use it for a, a little bit of a shield and try to hide under it. But I guess with a cat, you know, you, you fight back. But, oh man. Uh, yeah, that, obviously I wouldn't tell the tale, but uh, I think at the second or third time after I saw the eyes um, again, <laughs> there was a 
a big javelina that just came darting out of the bushes next to me. And that just about, you know, knocked me over. I mean, I was just, I, yeah. And so that features some of like the adventure stories that we find here, but some of the, the lessons I leave the episodes learning are about people who intentionally follow their passion. And I've expressed my love of <laughs> a surprising love of the movie city slickers on here. And the thing I loved about city slickers is that it's a story about a guy finding his, his smile, right? He's miserable. He's not liking his, his corporate life in New York city. And he goes on an adventure with his buddies and he finds a smile and, and literally like, it's a movie that hits it right on the nose. Like at the end, he smiles and points out his smile. <laughs> so I love that story. So here's a couple. Um, first one's with my friend Bill, psycholic. Um, he quit his job in New York City and ran a marathon in every national park uh, in the continental U.S. right now. And he's going for Alaska next year. So I'm hoping like through these stories – I inspire people, maybe not necessarily to like quit their job, but like really evaluate whether or not they're finding passion in their everyday. And if they aren't, what could they do to rediscover that passion? Well, I mean, how big of a leap was it to quit your job or to, to kind of take the importance off? Because I feel like so many people have such a huge importance on mm -hmm. their job. And that's like, yeah. sometimes it becomes like the main thing that like runs their life every single mm -hmm. day and was it a big leap for you to like change that mindset huge yeah huge M massive i don't know how to to make it but i need a bigger word you know <laughs> Back God, there you go that's a good one it was it was a big thing it, this is this is not something that i've done in the past it's not been where Every so often I've done a big adventure or I've done taken a big risk or just moved because I've decided to move. And I've always been worried about, you know, making that next move up on the ladder and um, moving up the corporate structure and, and earning more money and having more responsibility and prestige and all that. And at least in the area that I was working, I was realizing that wasn't fulfilling me. And having extra stuff and having a great New York City apartment and nice clothes and things is just it wasn't it wasn't doing it. You know, you'd buy that next next new pair of running shoes or <laughs> I mean, it could be something as silly as that. But then you're like, OK, well, it's another pair of shoes. Right. It's yeah. not it's not what's going to actually make you feel good in your life. And so uh, I, I, it, it's taken a while for that to wear off. Um, it's, I've been doing this for, I said, just, just a year. And a couple of people have asked about, uh, has your attitude changed? Have you, do you feel different? And, um, having been in the corporate life, corporate world from big banks to a number of consulting companies for 20 years, at least since undergrad, you know, 25 years, whatever, uh, it's hard to break. So I started this project and then I started running it at like doing it as a job. Yeah. <laughs> got to be the next one, got to schedule it, got to be on time, got to, got to have all the logistics worked out and this and this and very, very detailed because that had been my role for so long. Um, and it took me about seven months 
to break out of that. And then it still took me another three, so three or four, so just approaching right now, where I started to feel a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more about just, you know, being on the path rather than dictating the path of life. You know, and it's very, very hard. It's it's not something. And this is what I what I'm. You know, we could go down all sorts of different paths, but I'm I'm trying to encourage people who are in the corporate world, who are like me, who have the finance undergrad, the the MBA, the working in consulting or corporate life, that it is possible to make a change. And um, you, you don't have to go out and run marathons, but if you're not fulfilled and you're not bringing your best to the world, then you're cheating the world as in addition to your family and your friends and everybody that's close to you. So putting undue necess- um, emphasis on like job growth and, and career development can be detrimental. I'm not discounting if you enjoy it and you love it and it's, it's wonderful and it's fulfilling and rewarding and it's providing for your family, great. But if it's sucking the life out of you, yeah then you have to sit and think about whether that's the right thing for you and for for the people around you. And following along the lines of Bill's story, the next one uh, was the very first podcast I took on, quote unquote, on the road, (laughs) where I drove 15 minutes to the Farrell Mountain Store on Tennyson Street in Denver and talked to their owner, Jimmy Funkhauser, about uh, when he decided to make to take the leap of starting this store. And Farrell's awesome, man. Like they've expanded so much since I've talked to Jimmy. Uh, They have a store up in Idaho Springs now, which is on your way up I-70 into the mountains. Um, And they've they've got a new space on Tennyson Street. And it was a cool interview because I remember sitting in the basement surrounded by gear, like camping gear, talking to this guy. And I was like, this is how this podcast should be recorded, surrounded by camping stuff and ice axes and whatnot yeah let's get into it man i i read a couple articles about you um doing kind of i try to do like minimal research for this right where i'm like i want to know enough but i don't want to know everything you want to lead the witness yeah Yeah, you know and like that's not fun for me i like figuring stuff out as we go but uh i heard about year without fear yeah can you kind of get into that for me yeah so that's I guess what kind of led to the creation of Feral. Um, so I, I was in a pretty big corporate uh, gig uh, previously. I was with my old company for 10 years. And I had suffered the same disillusionment that I think everyone goes through in that type of setting. Whether you love it or not, there's always a point where you just ask, start asking yourself the big questions and keep coming back with the wrong answers. <laughs> and... Uh, it was New Year's Eve, 2015, and a buddy. I was out with some buddies, and a buddy asked me, "You know, what do you want to do next year?" Because I, he, they, I'm not a big uh, like resolution, resolution yeah. person. Like in my opinion, if you want to do something, you shouldn't have to shame yourself and just do it. Um, thought, or you can do what I do, which is just like the week leading up to the resolution. Being like, I'm just gonna eat like shit right now. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I I just I said you know, I just I, I thought about it, and I said I want to do whatever it is I would do if I wasn't afraid to do it. Yeah. I just want to kind of take things on without fear. Um, 
And then the very uh, the very next thought was like almost subliminally, it wasn't even like a conscious thought was, I would leave my job. Yeah. Immediately, <laughs> if I wasn't afraid to do it. Yeah. You know. So that was December thirty first. We grand opened on March fifth. So sixty five days later. Yeah. From just the whole process. Was it just like? A whirlwind of nonstop work to set that up, or yeah, yeah, it was nuts. Um, you know, it, because we carry some great brands, and the first step for me was convincing them that I wasn't a lunatic. Yeah, you know, because there there aren't a lot of local independent shops anymore. The ones that are here or anywhere have probably been there forever. Yeah, and they've just survived. There aren't a lot of people opening new boxes, so. You know, I, I, I went to Outdoor Retailer, I think it was like a week or two later in Salt Lake City, and I just went basically booth to booth and introduced myself, said, this is who I am, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm passionate about. We don't even have a name yet at that point. Yeah. And uh, just sold my vision. And fortunately, we had a handful of great brands that were excited about that, and it grew from there. What kind of like reactions were you getting? Oh, like, the whole gamut. Like, yeah. <laughs> people that were excited and people that literally thought I showed up on a cocaine binge or something like I've, I'd lost my mind. Like this guy who came in off the, off the street and didn't, yeah. you know, I mean, it, I'm being a little facetious, but truly there were some people that weren't really even interested in having the conversation because, uh, you know, for a lot of them, the reps already have the stores they like. They don't, in some cases, they don't want to have to work any more than they already do. Yeah. And, uh, and also, you know, they, um, want, I think most brands want to see a finished product, want to see what do you actually bring to the table before they jump in, into the the game with you. And we had some of that, you know, there were some brands that initially were very lukewarm about the idea, but came on board six months later when they came and saw what we were all about. Yeah. Um, but there were also some that were really excited just because, uh, there's not a lot of new stuff, new retail, new in- independent outdoor gear shops out there. All right. And then, uh, you know, those are the guys that took that initial leap. And someone else who took that leap uh, was the Black Alachian Daniel White. And uh, he hiked the Appalachian Trail and he went into it with basically little to no experience at hiking or camping. Um, definitely not the experience one would imagine someone has when they start the AT. Uh, but I loved, I love talking to him so much because it shows us like, if you really want to do something, sometimes you just got to go do it and you can learn on the fly. Um, also I kept calling him, I kept saying the black elation, black elation, like Appalach- Appalachian, but that's cause I'm from Iowa. And then I realized I was like, dude, when you lived in Virginia, everyone said Appalachian. So anyways, I'm correcting it now, like 80 some episodes later or however many it is. (laughs) Sorry, man. All right. But he's incredible. Um, Following up on him, he just biked uh, the one of the routes of the Underground Railroad, which is just such a cool, interesting, inspiring project. So uh, definitely check out his stuff on Instagram and and YouTube and all that stuff. You know, hands-on experience is the best experience, you know. Yeah, definitely. So what was the learning curve, like, out on the trail? Like, how much preparation did you do going into your Appalachian Trail hike? And how much just learning on the fly did you do? Uh, Well, I mean, 
going in, I didn't really do too much preparation, but I watched YouTube, uh, <laughs> uh, the best I can get from from those guys, which, you know, um, shout out to Early Riser, um, one of the guys that I watched uh, all the way through. He gave me a lot of a lot of pointers, which he had a totally different style of hiking and, and doing things than I did, but um, I was able to learn a lot from him. Um, and as far as, like, actually physical, I went to uh, right outside of Charlotte, they have a a mountain range, uh, Crowder's uh, Mountain. It's like maybe 2,000 feet, I think, at the most. I'm not even sure it's that high. Um, you know, it's just like really like a, just a short loop. Um, so I went out there for a few days. I hiked maybe four or five miles here and there. Got it up to about eight here and there. Then I did one day when I did like maybe 15 or 16 miles. And then once I did that, I was like, okay, I'm confident I can do sort of big miles if I, if I hike all day. Yeah. Um, so that was my preparation going into it, you know, and once getting out there, oh man, it was, <laughs> you either learn or die. It was kind of either learn <laughs> or you go home, um, yeah. pretty quick. Cause I mean, the rain came in the second day I was there. So it was like, okay, either you get used to this and learn how to adjust to it or you going home. Yeah. Um, and just being out in the woods, I, I never camped a day in my life. Um, I didn't sleep in the tent until maybe three days before I left for the trail so i mean i just wasn't used to even setting up a tent sleeping out in the woods sleeping outside period and uh it was just a, 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 a it was yeah it was serious um yeah. but you know i was just determined to do it and i think the the thing that most frightened me for the first week was probably the sound of owls like i'm terrified of owls like <laughs> i wasn't worried about bears or nothing i was worried about owls hooting above my tent no so, way. You know, that was probably the scariest thing. <laughs> yeah. I caught a lot of crap for that too. <laughs> you shouldn't have admitted that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just one of those things, man. All right. And then to kind of just wrap up the show here today, uh I picked a couple from um two of my best friends in the whole world, um Shane Dowdy and my wife, Lindsay Ward. Uh I really enjoy f- talking with some of my friends on here because you just put aside an hour and you get to actually just sit down and have a focused conversation. And through both these ones, especially I just learned like, Whoa, my friends are pretty smart. are pretty smart people. My wife's like so smart and so funny and all this stuff. And it's just like a really, it makes you appreciate them that much more. Um, I love Shane's story. Uh, we're still working on, doing an episode three at some point. Uh, but this was from the second time he's on the show. And Shane uh, basically is on a journey to become a college football coach. And he is a college football coach now. He coaches uh, Division Two, I believe, uh, in Kansas. Um, but the journey that he's taken there to get there, uh, it basically like exemplifies the journey people have to take to achieve their goals. It's not always smooth sailing. It's not going to be easy. Uh, It's going to take consistent focus and consistent effort. And I think Shane's really shows that. Uh, This story though, (laughs) because as I was listening back, I was like, wow, there are so many cool parts of this episode. But this part just made me laugh so much um, that I wanted to put it in. But basically he just explains the story when he was a student assistant for Iowa and he his role during game day was he was on the sideline and he would have to be a dummy signaler. He would signal the plays in, but he was the dummy one. Enjoy. 
So my first year, I was on the sidelines in a in a signaling capacity. So I would stand by the offensive coordinator and then two backup quarterbacks, and uh, we would signal into the starting quarterback what the play was. And uh, and he would look at just one of you, right? He would look that we would one of us would be live. So technically, one of us would be the guy that was giving him the real play, and then one or two of us, if that's what I was doing, if I wasn't doing something else. Uh, would be the dummy signaler, as they call it. So giving fake signals, which, having done signals at other places, the dummy signaler is actually significantly harder. Because when someone tells you what to signal, you automatically have uh, body mechanics that go into place right away. And when you've got to hear it still, but then do something different, it really throws you off. And to create a sense of timing that coincides with the other guy, it's really difficult. Yeah, man. I so didn't even think it's, about uh, that. It's, it's an interesting thing that you wouldn't think of unless you were doing it. And then you're like, crap, 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 you know? <laughs> and, and suffice to say, uh, I kind of gave it into that, that answer, but I didn't really elaborate. When I said one or two dummy signalers, I was awful at it. <laughs> so by the time we got to whatever game, I just stopped dummy signaling because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And... Uh, the only time I truly dummy signaled for two real games was uh, Ohio State at Ohio State. Okay. Uh, because our quarterback was injured, and that was a big game for us. Uh. And then the next game against Minnesota, our quarterback was also injured uh, for that game as well. So those two games, I was actually a dummy signaler from because beginning to end. Because the backup wasn't on the sideline anymore. Because the backup wasn't. So now the backup was in, and he was getting the live signal from the other quarterback, and I was the dummy. And I look like one too, probably. <laughs> they're like, they're, the other coaches are on the sideline, like looking at you in binoculars, and they're like, "That guy's obviously the that dummy. guy is he's, not giving a signal that means like, anything." On like a first, first of all, he's on like a fifteen-second delay. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's thinking. He's sweating like a pig. <laughs> oh my god, that's funny. Oh. I didn't, dude. That's something. Yeah, man. If you weren't a part of a football program or you didn't have that experience, yeah, you wouldn't be able to empathize, empathize with the dummy signal. The dummy signaler. <laughs> it's a tough job, man. So we'll we'll have Shane back on at some point. And like I said, it's really <laughs> as I'm doing this, I'm scrolling through episodes 40 through 80, and it's really pained me to not have clips from some people so i'll have to come back but like ryan esdor man he's been on the show three times that guy is like the yoda of the podcast i'm like man i should really just go and pull some clips um along with the the a couple clips back with the appalachian trail uh see i'm saying appalachian now that's how i do it uh matthew morero i mean i'm gonna mess up his name now morero uh that one, man, I left. Like, he told his whole story about the Apple Trail. I had, like, the biggest smile on my face. Uh, Chad Spring, I went down, ran with him, uh, carried a bucket up the hill a bunch, but he's an uh, ultra obstacle course racer as well. He did the Barkley Fall Classic. Like, I wish I could get into his story a bit on here. Uh, Micah Meyer, I'm definitely going to have to do, like, a part two of the clip show. <laughs> Calvin Johansson, Calspirations, always the best. Uh, so... Yeah, I'll go back. I'll go back and and do another one when I get the energy up. Uh, And I'll go back through the first 80 episodes and pull some clips from people I haven't been able to feature. Um, But but I guess before I sign out, I hope you guys have had had just an amazing 2018. Um, 
I hope you're setting your sights on some awesome stuff in 2019. I really, truly do. I have, I have some goals. I have some goals with the podcast, goals as a dad and a husband, uh, as an athlete. Obviously, I have some of those goals as well, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great year. Uh, but we're going to wrap up the show today with one of my absolute favorite moments of any of the episodes we've recorded. Uh, and it was talking to my wife and it was, my wife is the funniest, quickest, like she's so quick with her humor. Um, and I just love talking with her because maybe that's why I married her amongst a billion other reasons. Um, <laughs> but we talked on that, that episode about her first half marathon. She was just amazing. She's an amazing mother to my kids, uh, amazing wife. But, uh, but yeah, this is to, to, to end the podcast. So this is, we're going to leave on this one. I'm not coming back after this one until next week, which by the way, the beginning of this year, I have some really cool ones already recorded and I'm excited to share them. Uh, next week we have an Olympic gold medalist. It's going to like, it was so cool. But anyways, before we leave though, I want to share the funniest moment for me personally on the show. And it's when my wife tried to explain what she originally thought goat yoga was have a good rest of your year guys and we'll be back at you in 2019 do you want to know what i thought goat yoga was at first what do you what do you think i thought it was me i do what do you think i thought it was i have no idea okay so i thought when people said goat (laughs) yoga i did think that there was gonna be a goat but i thought that the (laughs) So so stupid. The, wait, hold on, wait, wait, let me guess. Let me guess. I came out with Did you think the goat was gonna be the instructor? Yes. <laughs> yes. I thought the goat yoga was a bunch of people that go and there's like the league <laughs> I there's like the goat and you do whatever kind of move the goat is doing. I thought that that is what goat yoga was. What, what kind of moves are know. goats doing? They oh well, they do a lot of leg I had never been up close and personal with a goat until I could to goat yoga. <laughs> what? Like, you thought you'd just stand on all, I, all fours? I thought we would just, dip it, your head it, down? it would be like Simon says, but we would just, it, we would just do what the goat did. <laughs> but, oh my god, please start your own goat yoga. I think it's gonna be my own offshoot. Um. <laughs> like this goat hasn't done shit all day. <laughs> It's just in your ears. Um...